go. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School. I'm your director, Reddy Rich, coming to you from a privately held museum and tailor shop. Today we're running the first half of Penn's meeting with Adam Corolla at a totally disclosed yet unnamed competing casino property on the Las Vegas Strip. Here they are, preaching love, Penn Gillette and Adam Corolla. I'm backstage in the green room at uh, Jimmy Kimmel's club in Las Vegas. We have a guest, one of my favorite people, Penn Gillette, is sitting in with us. Good to see you, Penn. Very good to see you, Adam. And it's nice that this room is packed. Yeah. Absolutely packed with Jimmy Kimmel's here. It absolutely is packed. It's a beautiful venue. I know uh, Penn is uh, got much to talk about. Uh, one is uh, Penn and Teller live at the Rio. Longest running show in Vegas? No, 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 no. no. Longest running show in the history of Vegas. In the history of Vegas. It's very important Vegas. because that way we kick Sinatra's ass. How many years? We have been in the same location for 21 years. 21, 21 years. years banging out shows in Las Vegas, Nevada, which I, I never crossed my mind I would end up here. No, I mean, given your start, where you come from, your early life, your early attitude and yeah. sort of uh, Las Vegas was the antithesis of who you were when you were 23. It exactly. would have been a punchline. When I moved here, Vegas. it was the antithesis. Yeah. Right. You know who totally changed my mind, though, was Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. You know, I came out here in about 86. We were off Broadway. Everybody was blowing us. You know, we were the smart guys off Broadway and Broadway. And I took a break with a couple of my friends to come to Vegas and go to the Grand Canyon. Now, you know, I'm a non-drinker. I don't gamble. Nothing interested me about Vegas. And we we're going to go to the Grand Canyon and, you know, hang around with a couple of friends. You know, leather jackets and full Ramones shit then. Mm-hmm. And uh, ironically, we bought tickets to see Dean Martin. Won't that be just the stupidest thing in the world? We'll go see Dean Martin. Right. You know, and uh, there was no respect whatsoever. I barely respected Sinatra. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I get it. Just to jump in, it's kind of sad, like what we do with that generation Mm -hmm. that's ahead of us. Like we made fun of Elvis. Mm -hmm. There were people in 1977, somebody said, let's go see Elvis or like that fat old washed up. That's your dad's band. Let's go see Peter, Paul and Mary. (laughs) There's somebody who nobody cares that you would have seen. I I felt the same way with Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. I was here doing Crank Anchors in like, I don't know, 07. I said, let's go see Siegfried and Roy. And everyone said, are you kidding me? Come on, that's sappy crap. But we're punished. We're punished by having the same thing done to us. Right. Yeah, right, so it comes around. It comes around. And, and and you can never, you know, Pete Townsend can never explain when he's talking to the new generation. Right. No, 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 no. We actually have shit to say still. Right. They're never gonna they're never gonna listen to that. And and they're talented. That's yeah. why we know who they are. Exactly. The reason you know who Celine Dion is is because she's talented. She can do shit. Right. So you're here. You decide to go see Dean Martin is almost a goof. Yeah, it's a goof. It's absolutely a goof. Leather jackets, you know, Ramones t-shirts, torn jeans. We're going to sit in a booth at the, you know, because I was I, I had enough juice to have a nice booth. We're, 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 we, I, 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 what I year is this? Uh, this would be 85, 86. Mm-hmm. I don't need to tell you this, but we had no intention 
of being disrespectful or impolite. I'm right. talking about what was in our hearts, not right. we're going to heckle. <laughs> right. But I, I shouldn't need to tell you that, but I want to make sure anybody get confused. So we sit there, and Dean Martin comes out, and it was exactly the Ramones. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what I mean. The Ramones, when you go see the, and I used to see the Ramones a lot, and they were buddies of mine. You'd go see the Ramones, and they'd get to like the fourth song, and you'd say, well, they can't do another song in E at this tempo. They just can't do that. They mm-hmm. got to change it up. There's going to be a guitar solo. There's got to be a ballad. It's got to change up. And then it doesn't. And that 20 minutes after the first four songs is kind of excruciating because you go, really? This is going to be all night? Mm-hmm. And then it clicks into a performance art type thing where you go, yes, they are going to go faster and louder all the way through and then end. And you go out there and Dino uh, was just relaxed and slow and quiet. And you said, well, he's not going to do that the whole time. He's going to punch it up at right. some point. And then like 40 minutes in, you're going, I've never seen anything like this. He's going to be that relaxed the whole time. And Dean Martin was a, um, you know, was a sociopath, never cried, didn't care about anybody. And so I've never seen anyone, and I mean anyone, with less fear on stage. He hmm. did not give a fuck. There was somebody that um, that yelled out something, was disruptive. And I just remember the wackiest way to deal with a heckler I've ever seen in my life. He turned and looked at him. And, of course, they shut up immediately. Mm-hmm. And Dean went, no, 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 no. You don't have to shut up. You don't have to be quiet. Uh, you know, uh, Sinatra, he's got to be quiet and respectful. I don't care what you do during my show. You can park cars during my show. I don't care. And the big swing and dick of that, it's a whole other level from the put down of, you know what I mean? It's just saying to someone you're completely impotent. You right. have no power over me whatsoever. There's nothing there to be disruptive with, right? Yeah, I mean, it's basically the schoolyard version of, you know, if if the boy's tugging on the girl's pigtails. Yeah. Well, he probably likes her, or at least knows yeah. who she is. The greatest insult on a schoolyard is who? Yeah. I, I don't know that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's in your science class. Yeah. I, I don't know who you're talking about. Like if, if you, to the recipient, the worst thing you can say in show business is not Pendulette. I hate that guy. It's who? Yeah. Right. That's, that that's is. a slap in the face. Yeah. And that was what sort of Dean yeah, was doing up on stage. Doing. And it was just, it was just incredible. And then a guy who just died, I think, uh, a year ago, maybe tomorrow, Joel Fishman, who was, uh, who was a promoter in Atlantic City. He came to us, uh, promoter Booker in Atlantic City. He came to us when we were off Broadway and he said, I want you to play Atlantic City. And we said, we're not going to play Atlantic City. Did you read the New Yorker recently? Did right. you read the New York Times? Yeah, we're you're not, cool. You're we're hit. not Atlantic City kind of guys. Did you know that last right. night at our show, Iggy Pop and Andy Warhol were both there? Right. I don't think we're going to play Atlantic City. And he said, I'll make a deal with you. You come to Atlantic City. You do the smartest stuff. You try to bomb. You do the quiet stuff, the long monologue stuff. And uh, if you don't like it, I'll pay you the whole week and you can leave after two shows. Wow. And we said, well, we're not going to play in Atlantic City. No, he said, you're going to find out it's the same people. I don't mean the same kind of people. I mean actually the same people. 
Mm-hmm. And I went, and Teller went, a week. And if we don't like it, we're just going to split. And uh, he said, you know, and I'll have, uh, I'll have uh, you open for the Temptations. So we'll have a, just a random Vegas crowd. You mm-hmm. can see how you like it. And we went out there. We were real assholes about it. I mean, we picked material that was much, much too uh, obtuse. Yeah, for yeah. the off-Broadway crowd, let alone Vegas. We went there, and we just loved it. Really? It was a really nice audience, a really good. And then, so we started adding Atlantic City. And, of course, the money was really good. What? Back to uh, Dean Martin mm-hmm. and you and your uh, band of Ramonians. When the show was over, you walked away from it with a thought. Mm-hmm. Did the rest of the yes. group have that, yeah. and did they admit it out loud? All three of us just went, uh, was, was that really good? Right. And the other one said, I think it was one of the best things I've ever seen. And wow. then the other one was like, it's really out. It's really avant-garde. It's, it's crazy. And I went, yeah, he just doesn't give a fuck, and he sings perfectly. I mean, that's the other thing. It was just like, I've got the goods. Mm-hmm. And here I am, and you know, there's two ways to do performing. I mean, to be really gross about it, you either have to care so desperately what the audience thinks of you. Uh, Don Rickles is an example of that. Celine Dion is an example of that. You know, desperately, if you do not approve of me, I will die right here on stage, literally. Mm-hmm. And the other way is not to give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if you're in the middle. Yeah. And try to do one or the other, they will destroy you. I've always had this metaphor. Everyone listening is tired of it, but <laughs> he's the only one I'm talking to right now. I, I feel this way uh, politically. I feel this way from a performance standpoint, as you just said. I've always said you either have to be on the beach, away from the waves, or out beyond the breakwater, mm-hmm. floating in the calm. It's the middle yeah. where you just get pumped, you get pummeled. Yeah. And it there's it's sort of a universal thing of trying <laughs> to keep everyone happy <laughs> or trying to ride both sides of the aisle politically, like trying to navigate right down the middle. That's where, where you just get pummeled. Yeah. And I, I completely agree from a performance standpoint because there's comedians do that too. Some hit the stage hard and they're riding that unicycle and they're burning those calories. And then the others that just, don't even want to be there, or at least that's their persona. Yeah, you can be, you can, you can. And, be but ca- toggling back and forth can't. You can be you carrot pummeled. top, or you right. can be Stephen Wright. <laughs> right. So for you, out, I have so many questions to ask you because every time I know I'm going to speak to you, I'm like, oh, I know, I'm like, I got this, I got that, I got the other questions for him. So you, at least, the seed was planted in your head that there, that there was an that. Vegas actually was kind of punk and alternative in its own yeah, fashion. And it kind of wasn't then. Because I, I, I hasten to add, every other show we saw was exactly as sucky as you'd expect from Vegas. Right. There are people doing George Burns impersonations. You know, right, There are right. people doing, um, uh, and, I, and I'm not using this the way you might use it in the woke sense, but truly homophobic things, mm-hmm. truly racist things. Right. I mean, not funny, just, ugh. and uh, so I hated Vegas for all those reasons. And then the same guy, Joel Fishman, moves from uh, from Atlantic City out to Vegas and says, okay, guys, we're going to play Vegas. 
Mm-hmm. And we went, well, Atlantic City was okay. It's closer to New York. Right. It's all the deals. No, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do Vegas. And he put us in the fucking celebrity room at uh, at Bally's, which is where Sinatra, Willie Nelson, George Carlin, mm-hmm. all at that time were playing, right? Everybody mm-hmm. did. And, um, and we went, I, I, don't, I don't know if we can do that. And everybody in the town of Vegas was like, oh, there's, there's Joel losing his job. He's bringing Penn and Teller to Vegas. And, you know, I saw that on the marquee, that giant, you know, our names, you know, whatever they were, 40 feet tall, mm-hmm. mind-blowing. And we got there, and I will tell you, and there's a cheat on this. Before, before you bust me, there's a cheat. We have the record for the most tickets sold in the celebrity room in history. That means better than Sinatra, better than Dean Martin, better than Liza Minnelli. And the reason is we had no comps. Oh, we right. had no friends. We had not right. one, right. not yeah. friends. So we are the only ones to have ever sold right. every single seat. Because and nobody it, in the casino wanted to see us. So we yeah. sold every single yeah, seat. If Sinatra blows into town, there's got to be 150 comps sure. for all the friends and coming over from their show and everyone who works at the casino and, and the high rollers all the high rollers. Uh, you want to come well. in from china see sinatra sure right yeah so what is your schedule like your daily well now schedule? it's now it's incredibly easy we're just doing thursday friday saturday sunday and then we go out and do uh very often we change that to monday tuesday and go out and do a thursday friday gig on the road and i know you get out before the show because i've seen it and play the stand-up bass. Are you still yeah, doing play, that? I play the upright. And I, I'm pretty proud of this, and I know no one else cares, but um, just about two months ago, I recorded a trio record with real jazz people. Jeff Hamilton, Mike Jones. Jeff Hamilton, uh, I was going to say one of the best jazz drummers, but I said that in front of him once, mm-hmm. and Jeff Hamilton said, okay, name two others as good as me. Right. And I said... Okay, and he said, stop saying one of the best. So Mm. the best jazz drummer, Jeff Hamilton. And I went in there, you know, in music, I guess in any field, uh, you've got two goals. Goal number one, don't be noticed. Goal number two, be noticed. (laughs) But you can't do them in the other order. Right. And I went into a studio with my upright bass and no gags, no Penn and Teller show coming up, no nothing. I played upright bass. And well, I, I think everybody I know says I was okay. Now, you don't buy this record and go, you got to hear this trio record because the bass player is the best you've ever heard. You still buy it for the piano player and for the drummer, but there's no moment of the record during my solos or anything where you go, oof, he can't play. And yeah. I can't tell you how proud I was of that because I've been working for 20 years to learn to play the upright bass. And I finally got, and the, and the record has a great name too, which is, are you sure you three guys know what you're doing? Hmm. Which as you know, is a Stooges reference. Does the stand-up bass, which my dad played. Oh, really? And I have a very distinct memory of when I was, he kept it at my grandparents' house. I, I don't even know what the story was. The family was kind of a mess, but I remember sleeping at my grandparents' house in my grandfather's office, like on the sofa one night, and I would look, and in the corner, my dad had this stand-up bass in its sack, and it's like sort of brown Uh, sack, sort of zipped up and leaned against the wall, and I I was nine, you know, and I I, I woke up at two in the morning, I saw it, and I envisioned a large, heavy-set 
woman of color like just standing there because of the way the hips yeah. look and the curves look. Um, Are you going to lead up to ask me if I fucked my baseball? Yes, was that's where I was heading <laughs> with this. Well, if we can cut to the chase, I can just say yes. When you when you play at the top of your show, you are a very good bass player for magician. But when you go into the studio, you're just a bass player yeah, at that point. That's and that's what you have to deal with. Does the stand-up bass translate to the electric well, bass guitar they are can the, you play that this is not the, as good but competently they're they the same tuning mm -hmm. uh but the uh the, the electric bass is fretted and right. the the upright bass is uh is is not so your intonation is incredibly important on the upright bass and just putting your fingers kind of in the right place is all that matters in the electric bass and here's the thing that's so uh kind of counterintuitive if you play electric bass like a punk, right, uh, you don't hurt your fingers. You don't hurt anything. Mm -hmm. When you play like mellow jazz on an upright bass, you know, I can't use my fingers on an iPhone because there's no finger there. Right. Uh, it's just, uh, it's all callous like deep right, there. Right. And uh, in order to make the sound, you've got to really move shit. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny. So now if I play an electric bass, which I can play, I just am ripping it apart because mm -hmm. I'm putting so much more force into it. And I just also, I just also bought a, a really, really nice bass. As a matter of fact, you've heard this bass before because in all the Star Wars soundtracks, on pretty much every soundtrack, the guy who owned it before me that you heard an upright bass was playing it. He was the major guy. He was a session guy? Yeah, yeah. So back to the schedule. What is the schedule like for you on, I mean, a, on a working day? On a working day, uh, I get up about nine, mm -hmm. uh, exercise, meditate, all that shit, shit you got to do. Write my journal like a little girl. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, then I do about an hour to two hours, an hour to an hour and a half of studying Spanish. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I'm doing a show in Spain, all in Spanish in oh. June. So Teller is too, but he doesn't. No, no. Oh, Just but me. he wouldn't need to learn Spanish no, anyway. And then uh, usually, you know, my children, this is just about over, but my children, I'm still picking them up from school about 2.30. Mm -hmm. I try to spend time with my children, which as you know with teenagers is impossible. Yeah. There's nothing they want to do with you. No. And then I have my uh, my supper about 5.30, mm -hmm. drive in about 6.30. Uh, we no longer, because of the plague, we stopped doing the meet and greets afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we're going to start that up or not, but it cuts down by yeah. 45 minutes or an hour, how long mm -hmm. the shows take. And I go backstage and if there's someone who's come see the show, hang out with them a little bit and then uh, drive home and start up again. Did uh, I, I was trying to figure out your diet from way back when, mm -hmm. when you lost a hundred plus pounds, yeah, about 120, 120 pounds. And I was trying to recite it to Chris and maybe Mike, which is you were telling me, I believe you take one vegetable or one item and you simply eat well, that. That for was an for extended the extended period. No, no, of time. that was just the big change. That was, that was just when they wanted to get myself in a different head. I did two weeks of just potatoes, two weeks of just potatoes. And what that does is it just knocks you out of the standard American diet. It right. just makes you think different. It's not it's yes. not healthy to right. do that for a month. But no. for two weeks, it just makes you, all the advertising looks different. You just right. go, Jesus, everybody's eating all the time. Yes. And it also teaches you what real hunger is. 
because yes. you go, I don't feel like eating a potato. Right. And then like three hours later, you go, I want to eat a potato. And that's what hunger is. See, if, yes. you, if you have a craving for a certain food, you're not hungry. Right. If you'll eat anything, you're hungry. And you right. want to teach all that stuff. So that's just like two weeks of like, just turn the switch. It's just rebooting. Just yeah, no, I, uh, that's, then I, I surmise that because people go, how are you going to lose weight eating potatoes? It's like, you're, you're not, you're, you're getting dominion mm-hmm. over yourself. And it takes about, about three months uh, mm-hmm. for most people to establish a habit. Yeah. So, to, so you've got to eat really carefully for three months, or if you're going to exercise or do anything, the thing is people think you can establish a habit in two or three weeks and you simply can't. Mm-hmm. You've got to just brute force it for three months. You know, there's this uh, expression, we make our habits and our habits make us. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really true. You can kind of control who you, I'm kind of a nut about, uh, about habits because if you can get a habit going, you can do anything. So my habit to practice the base, my habit to learn Spanish, you can do. You know. Yeah, I, I know. I've, been thinking about this a lot because when we were younger, we weren't fat because we couldn't be fat because places were closed on Sunday. We didn't have a grub hub. We had no money. Right. You know, I was incapable of being fat when I was 27 because I taught boxing. I was poor and I was a carpenter. How would I possibly get fat given those three and, and things? The, I had no money. I couldn't go through the drive through at In and Out. I was literally on and my feet. You also feet don't all day. have, you when you're a carpenter, just like you're not standing there with food around you. I mean, how many meetings, and this is less true now, but talk about even 10, 15 years ago. How many meetings do you go in in Hollywood? It's 11 in the morning and they have a full spread with muffins and everything. And you go, who is hungry here? No, I, that's, that's, that's and my a point. carpenter, you don't show up and they don't say, oh, here's a spread here while you're working. No. We, we got, we got donuts. We got no, bagels. You, you need some fruit. What do you need? We have Coke here. What do you want? They don't even, I mean, I, I oftentimes think about this as it pertains to water. Everyone's filling up the bottle and bringing their tote mug and walking up and down the street with their big, you know, one yeah. liter, whatever. We just show up seven in the morning. You just start working. Nobody had any containers of water. It would have been a canteen back then, I guess, or a boda bag or something. Everyone just worked out in the sun, San Fernando Valley, up on their feet, up on the roof. Maybe you'd get a suck off the hose at some point, but the water was warm and it tasted like vulcanized rubber. So it wasn't that Boy, when you say that, it brings it so to mind Does it? drinking water out of a hose yes. you just know the whole life you know that yes yes it is something that our kids will never experience <laughs> but if you say it to anyone of our generation you immediately snap back and then you would just work and then five hours in there'd be lunch yeah and someone would go on a run and you'd eat a burrito and then you just go back to yeah. work that there was no grazing there was no snacking i i I cannot tell you all the people I talk to who go like, yeah, I'm hungry. I go, you cannot possibly be hungry. I've been with you all day. You ate a breakfast burrito an hour and 20 minutes ago. You ate 2,700 calories. You're not hungry. Yeah. You're bored or you you're go, reflexive. Yeah. And if you're on a set of a movie, 
It's yes. incredible. It's they incredible. They come into your trailer and say, what would you like? You have a breakfast burrito. We have hash browns. And then, like, you finish yeah. one take, and someone runs to you with a bottle of water. Like, it... You, when you're on a film set, in inside air conditioned, you it in, if you're doing if you're on a film set, uh, you have to drink more water and eat than if you were climbing Everest. I, you know, the funny part about being on the set is when you go, I'm not going to hang around the craft service table. They take three tables, they spread them out. It's got trail mix, it's got granola bars, it's got the muffins, it's got the everything bagel. It's it's a giant carb explosion that mm -hmm. just goes down this table so then when you're on the set you go well stay away from that table and at some point you're talking to the director and you're having a little meeting and the craft service woman walks up because she made quesadillas yeah <laughs> and you can smell them now and she's passing the tray around yeah. and she's got mango smoothies yeah. <laughs> too like mini mango smoothies and now you're standing and she's bumping you in yeah. the shoulder going quesadilla mango smoothie and you're like oh yeah, I guess I'm a blot. Now I'm obliged yeah. because you brought the mountain to Muhammad. But I tried to escape <laughs> this carb landslide. But now you've shown up. They're knocking at the door. It's the weirdest thing. I've always said this about show business. The two things that'll run you out of show business is getting fat and getting drunk. And all they do is try to force food on you. They give you <laughs> baskets filled with muffins when you yeah. know the show wraps, and then. They give you a bottle of scotch that's single malt. Like, what kind of message is this? The worst thing you could do is drink and or get fat. Those are those yeah. are the two things. That's all they do. That's yeah. all they push. Well, you know, uh, I have uh, I have always talked about never drinking. And you also know that they deliver baskets to me with wine oh, right, right. all the time, you know, care. because because that's the uh, that's the thing you do. And I often will get in. 2 a.m. to a hotel. You know, we're, we're playing a gig the next night. Mm -hmm. At 2 a.m., I walk into my room, and there is bottles of liquor for right. me. And right. I just go, man, I mean, it's been my whole life, so the bottle of liquor means nothing to me. But I think, boy, the poor bastard right. who's really fighting with this. And it's 2 a.m., and he's overworked, and he can't sleep. Denzel Washington in flight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to walk past that minibar. Yeah. No, I I know it. It's it, it's but it's essentially me with the quesadillas. Like I, I said, yeah. please keep away, and they just keep pushing it yeah. at well, you. You never did the Drew Carey show, did you? No, no, nah, his sitcom. You said no, I did not. That was uh, craft services gone wild. Mm. Uh, I it was four rooms. He had a popcorn machine, full Baskin Robbins set up. He had, I've never seen so much food. There were like four people manning it and yeah. you'd walk near it and they had any kind of food you can think of. The, geez, I'd like some uh, fried rice and maybe a tamale on the side mm -hmm. and then some pistachio ice cream with hot fudge. Mm -hmm. And they'd go, done. You know, anything. And then the next week I did Friends. Mm. And backstage, they had celery. Oh, really? And I said to the craft services person, wow, this is sure is different than the Drew Carey uh, uh, craft services. And she said, yep. And look at their cast. Right. <laughs> and look at ours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not just Drew. <laughs> All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Pendulette right after this. I'm here in uh, London. 
and I'm doing uh, doing shows here at the um, Hammersmith Apollo. It's called something else, but uh, that's what I call it because that's what it was called when the Beatles and the Clash and David Bowie played here. I got to tell you, one of the things I'm using the show now is something that I learned at a class on Masterclass. Uh, it taught me that uh, pointing is considered to be a kind of aggression. I think it was in a master class about uh, hostage negotiation or something that you wouldn't think would be useful to a, a magician. And that's the great thing about master class. You learn from the best to become your best anytime, anywhere at your own pace. Annual membership starts at $10 a month. You get unlimited access to every instructor, thousands of online lessons, exclusive content, insights, and much more. And that's my point. We did a master class on magic. We did a master class on magic. They did such a good job. Man, was that class good. They edited it well. They shot it well. Uh, Teller's a wonderful teacher, but they made him even better. We work with Johnny Thompson. Matt Donnelly's in it. Piff is in it. It's uh, it's really, really good. But um, a lot of people who aren't going to learn magic are going to watch that and pick up other stuff like I picked up. So take the master class lessons. They're really, really good. And it's one price and you get access to all the classes, all the instructors. And the instructors are people like Neil Gaiman, Ron Howard, Steve Martin, uh, and then the cooks. You know, I, I can't just name cooks, but all the famous cooks teaching you to cook everything from fancy, fancy, fancy meals to, uh, you know, just how to poach an egg properly if you want to do that. So get unlimited access to every class. And right now, as a Penn Sunday School listener, you can get 15% off when you go to masterclass.com slash pen. That's masterclass.com slash pen for 15% off an annual membership. Masterclass.com slash pen. And that includes all the classes and all the extras. It's a really groovy, groovy thing to do. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair all delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. All right, but let me give a couple of plugs to Penn. Uh, the series, Penn and Teller, Fool Us, season nine, airing on the CW. Which is actually season 10, which makes me angry, but go ahead. Also, uh, the game, You Lying Sacks, available at Walmart and Amazon. Yep. 
<laughs> well, what's a charity you're working with out here for uh, I, a, a I, number I, of years? I, I, I work a lot with Opportunity Village. And, of course, the nightly show, which is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Uh, that's at the Rio. Obviously out there. Tickets at penandteller.com. Um, I can't ask him myself, so I'll ask you. Uh, nobody knows anything about Teller. Uh, I got a chance to talk to him backstage at one of your shows for a while. Found him delightful. Uh, we know... You're learning Spanish, you're meditating, you're journaling, you're playing the stand-up bass, upright bass. What's what's a teller into? Well, this is this is kind of almost seems like a joke, but for teller it's magic. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, teller is uh, and I think it's really safe to say this now and I believe uh, I mean no one could be more prejudiced about this, but I I believe I I'm, I'm agreed on on this that he is uh one of the best magic minds in the world now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teller actually um, actually sits around, you know, three or four hours a day and reads magic books. Really? I, phenomenal. And I'll also say, I think one of the, one of the most telling things about Teller, you know, there's a lot of, not a lot of people, there's a few people who have extensive magic libraries and they collect stuff like the, um, uh, you know, the discovery of witchcraft, which was in the 17th century. It's the oldest magic book. The first book that deals with magic is trickery, right? Mm -hmm. And these books, there's, you know, X number around, and they're like, you know, 100,000 bucks. Copperfield has three, Mm -hmm. you know. And they collect books like that and original Houdini stuff. And Teller has some very expensive books, like, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 books. But here's all you need to know about Teller. He writes in them. Really? <laughs> There's underlines. Them up. Underlines that go, we could use this. Uh, this that says use your right hand. He actually means left. This is a typo. So if you go to Teller's Magic Library, which is extensive, you know, uh, and yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I went and saw um, Darwin's library, the actual library that, that Darwin had in his mm-hmm. home. They have the books there. A private collector has it. And you open those books, and Darwin's like underlining shit and writing mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Because Teller is not collecting to bring people into his library and say, look at these books I have. He's collecting because he wants to read the goddamn stuff. And then Teller s- sorts through this shit, learns this shit, knows all this shit, and then comes in and says to me, um, I Xerox two pages that I want you to look at and be able to use. Mm-hmm. Now that's after he's read 700. Right. You know, I've dug this out. This might be useful. We might change this. And Teller is talking to all the people that make props and know everything. You know, we do the show, Penn and Teller Fool Us, and several magicians have made the joke, uh, kind of busting balls, but it's 100% true. They come out and go, you know, this show is not Fool Us. It's Fool Teller. Right. And I go, right. Uh, every season, uh, you know, uh, about 12% of the people fool us mm-hmm. and all the rest teller knows. And every year, meaning you don't know how the trick was done out of the, out of the 80 magicians that are on each season, there's two that I bust that teller didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it's usually a math thing mm-hmm. or a, or a computer thing that, uh, that teller's not studying, but teller, it's just like, we watch this stuff, and then I turn. I have a couple minutes where I have to hear what Teller has to say, 
and then formulate what I'm going to say in my jokes and stuff like that, get it all together. But I'm just doing, I mean, when they turn our mics off, the two of us are conferring, and it looks like the two great minds in magic are discussing this. What's being said, if you hear the mic, is what they do, Teller. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Teller's going, ah, there was a thing in 1948 in a book that came out of Scotland Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the actual guy's name, but it's a uh, there was there was a billet switch early on, and then I believe he's running it with a foot pedal. Is uh, <laughs> where are we in the state of magic? I always say I liken it to heavyweight boxing. Right yeah. now, who's the heavyweight boxing champ? Uh, Tyson Fury, I guess, named the top five. I don't really know all the guys back in the day. Mm-hmm. You could say Ali and Frazier and Holmes and, you know, Tyson. And, so, yeah. you know, and then there's and then the mid or later 80s when there are a bunch of no names no one's ever heard of. So it kind of has an ebb and a flow yeah. to it. Magic was at its height in what, what years, really? Well, and then know, where was it now? It's really... You know, you, you always want to, we were talking about generations, ju- judging other generations. And uh, if you look at the 20th century and you say 50 years from now, or let's just say, you know, uh, you know, 21, that century, who, what is the, what is the entertainer in the 20th century that will be remembered? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like, will it be Jolson? Will it be Elvis? Will it be the Beatles? Mm-hmm. And uh, those are the major, those are the major contenders. Maybe Brando, you throw in there or something. And um, I think it's Houdini because mm-hmm. Houdini is in the dictionary, mm-hmm. which Elvis is not. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say he kind of Houdinied, they know uh-huh. they know he right, disappeared. Right. And I will do this challenge to you, which I think is a really nice gadonk and a, a thought experiment. If you stand on the corner. Of, um, of Flamingo in Las Vegas Boulevard, and you walk out to that corner, and you say to um, several people, say, say you say to 10 people, uh, name a magician. Now, if you look to your right, there's a picture of me 300 feet tall mm-hmm. with Teller next to me, and it says Penn and Teller. If you turn your head the other way, there's a huge building covered with David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. If you look down the street, you see Shin Lim, mm-hmm. you see Piff the Magic Dragon, mm-hmm. and you see David Blaine, mm-hmm. and you see Matt Franco. Mm-hmm. Now you can see, I mean, you can see every one of those marquees where you're standing. And I will tell you, six out of the ten people will say, Houdini. Right. I think for the 20th century, and because Houdini, and people don't get this now um, in in. 1910, 1915, Houdini was not the most famous magician, okay? He was the most famous person. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the most famous entertainer. Mm-hmm. And he was in movies. He was he was, he was everything. And uh, so there was the time for Houdini. And then after Houdini, because Houdini died in his 40s, you had Thurston and Blackstone and all those guys Magic was really popular, and the reason is that magic is a live art form. Mm-hmm. And this is odd from the person who's doing the 10th season of Fool Us, but it's not something you can watch on TV. You've got to be in the room seeing it live. Yeah, Blackstone, I think, well, used, Blackstone to sell, Jr. Yeah. used to sell kits. Yeah. 
like on 70s TV. You can mm-hmm. buy a whole magic kit. You can buy a Penn and Teller magic kit. Oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't <laughs> see that on the TV. But yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a good point. So, and, and I want to ask about Shin Lim because I see his yeah. billboards everywhere. Well, I just put him in a movie. Oh, you did? I just put him in a movie. His billboards annoy me. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Hey, haircut? No, it's the flinging of the car. Yeah, yeah. Because as I said to someone yesterday, we don't know if we caught those cars. <laughs> He's just throwing cars. I could do that. You could get a picture of me with a deck of cards spraying them at my open hand. It's, it's, as long as you didn't take a second picture where they're all over the fucking floor, then I would look like I knew what I was doing, too. It's worse than that, Adam. He's not springing any cards. He's holding his hands like this. Oh, they, 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 oh, they added the cards. But Shin is very good. He is. Is, is he a card guy? Is he a, uh, he's, a, he's a close-up guy, which is why... Guy. His magic show is very strange because mm-hmm. his magic show, you go into a room with other people and you watch TV. Oh, so he has cameras yeah, tight yeah, on yeah, yeah. and then up on the jumbo yeah. Tron. Yeah. So you can see and that he kind of hand just, work. He just cannot not sell tickets. Really? People love going to see Shin Lim. And he's got this guy, Colin Cloud, with him who's a mentalist. Mm-hmm. Who's very good and very charming, and he does he does a really really nice show. Shin is very funny because Shin is um, very quiet, very shy, and just the audience goes wild. He just kind of comes out and I'll, I'll do this trick for you, you know, mm-hmm. not not big jokes, not big anything. But he's got really really good hands, and he also, uh, and I don't want to go into this more and be disrespectful to him, but he also came up with a way of thinking about close up magic. That mm-hmm. other people really hadn't. And like everything that's invented, there were probably 20 people working on it. Right. He's the first one that got it nailed and moved it to uh, uh, America's Got Talent. So where are we now in this, the state of magic? If this was heavyweights. Well, Vegas, Vegas is, because of Siegfried and Roy, mm-hmm. has been uh, the magic capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And... I believe the reason is, and I've just said this, and I'm going to say it again in a slightly different way. Um, you wanted to see Elvis. Mm-hmm. You wanted to see him live. You wanted to see Sinatra live. But much of what's good about them, you can partake of electronically. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's, it's like seeing Elvis live, right. but you can see you can see video. You kind yeah. of want to see Seinfeld live, but mm-hmm. also there's mm-hmm. some electronics there that you can get. But magic you cannot experience except live. So many of the people who come to Vegas uh, are seeing four live shows a year. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, Skinner Tribute Band comes to town, you go mm-hmm. see that. Maybe, you know, their children, you know, their grandmother drags them to see cats or mm-hmm. on tour. But they see maybe four shows. So if they come to Vegas, they really want to see a magic show. Let's see the one thing we can't experience electronically. And therefore, there's a lot of people here. You know, the name in magic that is the most famous for the past, well, for my whole lifetime is David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. Even though he's two years younger than me, mm-hmm. he's been uh, very famous since he was, what, fucking 19? He was doing shows with Orson Welles. I mean, really? Yeah. And Copperfield. Live shows with Orson Welles? He had, he had, he had a thing he did. Uh, he did a video thing with Orson Welles that was after Orson Welles died. But I think he talked magic with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did a thing with Gene Kelly. Wow. I mean, because he was 
fame is so young mm-hmm. and so blindingly ambitious. Copperfield has stories of that era that he shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Like you, like you know, he's um, I think two years younger than me, three years younger than me, but in our generation. Yeah, and you're not going to tell me a story about when you met Gene Kelly. No, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, no. I mean, there's a weird, there is weird crossover sometimes, and I don't know why it just popped in my head, but like, you see some of these movies like Viva Knievel, starring <laughs> Evil Knievel with. Um, Fred Astaire yeah, and Gene yeah. Kelly, and you're like, what is Evil Knievel? Yeah. And and there is some generational, occasional catch an episode of Love Boat, <laughs> like super young Tom Hanks, yeah, and Agnes Moorhead on, mm-hmm. you know, acting across each other at the bar. Well, that's why and, the Bacon number is so great, right? You know. The yes, yeah, Seven Degrees of Bacon, but is so. I don't know that I know Copperfield, and then here's an interesting question, challenge, or something. You are a magician, but you make yourself very knowable in terms of we know your personality, mm-hmm. plenty of plenty of uh, appearances on TV, plenty of interviews like this one. We get to know who you are. Understand? Is there something with Copperfield where there's a sort of an enigmatic thing yeah. where we don't want to know? Well, well, Actors used to do that. Like, I didn't know who Robert De Niro was mm-hmm. until about 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Now I know who he is. And in a way, it kind of screwed up a little of the acting yeah, part for me. I think it was, there was a recently an interview in the uh, Times with, I think it was Matt Damon, uh-huh. who just said, if you know too much about me, uh, you've really hurt my chances of doing my job right. Yeah. You're, you're supposed to be lost in that. I feel the same way about strippers. He's <laughs> 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 got a child seat in the Jeep. Yeah, <laughs> her old man's bouncing at the place, yeah, and it's yeah. like you're kind of ruining it for me. I like the runaway or the college student who's yeah. trying to make ends meet. Yeah, yeah it, no, I, I get it. I mean, like I said, I I was a fan of De Niro. I knew De Niro. I knew his work. That's all I knew. I pictured he was somewhere pacing and smoking all the time. Well, there's and then he starts showing up on the View, mm. and it kind of like screwed it up well, for me a, a little really, bit. There's a guy named David Greenberger who does a thing called the Duplex Planet where he interviews, you know, people still older than us. And he's he's a brilliant, brilliant artist in many ways, brilliant musician, everything. Uh, and David Greenberger said this thing that I think is one of the most uh, profound things about Dylan. He said, uh, if you ask someone what it's like to go out to dinner with Letterman, who's a hardcore fan of Letterman, um, They'll be able to tell you. Now, they'll be wrong. That's the important part of this whole thing. They'll be wrong. If you, let me make sure I got this right. If you talk to someone who goes out to dinner with David Letterman. No, if you say, if you're a Letterman freak. I'm a Letterman freak. And I say to you, you're going to go out to Letterman, we're going to go out to dinner, going to go to a nice Italian place on Friday with Letterman. What's going to be like to sit there with them? Right. They have a scenario. Yes. If you say that about Beyonce, they have a scenario. Right. They're wrong. They're completely wrong. But they think. But they have a scenario. You say to a hardcore Dylan fan, what's it like to go out with, Dil- with Dylan, do you think? They go, I don't know. Right. And he's kept that up for 60 years. Right. For 60 years, Dylan has gone from uh, blonde on blonde to Nashville skyline. Mm-hmm. His voice changes completely, and we just go, huh, wonder what happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's never, ever, ever given a glimpse of who he is. Yeah. And yet, his entire heart 
is poured out in the you know the the best writer of our of our lifetime. Right. So is Copperfield sort of that uh, way? Well, I, I well I you know Copperfield. I mean he's not Copperfield's he's not a Bob friend. Dylan, I don't want to be disrespectful. But what I mean but, is is the enigmatic part, the part where he doesn't that, sit what, down and that's what they're hoping. That's what they're long hoping. Long form podcast. That's what they're hoping for. The real truth of it is, and um, it's that everyone except me started magic when they were 12 years old mm-hmm. and they were obsessed and they were thinking about the tricks. And if you want to talk about the psychological bedrock, mm-hmm. it's obviously someone that wants to have something over on their peers, right? right? It's obviously uh, someone who's a little bit outside stuff. It's a masculine thing. It's a, I tricked you. Ha ha ha. So yeah. You, you get that kind of person. And it started off with a sort of a, I'm going to take a woman, I'm going to saw her in yeah, half. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? There yeah. was a lot of sort of misogynistic undertones. That the woman yeah. never speaks, we make her disappear. <laughs> <laughs> she comes back in something I, sexy. I don't think you then need, we saw her in half. I don't think you need to word, use the word undertones. You're right. I don't Those think it's overtones. subtext. That I think it's, subtext. Text. It's, text. it's text. It's text. I am only in magic because I met Teller. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, one of the most brilliant people I ever met and did magic that I actually liked. I hated magic because I've said many times a greasy guy in a tux with a lot of birds torturing women in front of Mylar to bad small dick white boy rip off Motown music. That's all it was. And when you were watching, because you're old enough, you would watch like uh, the Hollywood Palace or Mm. we were even old enough to watch Ed Sullivan. Yeah, The magician, the magician was the one who got in the way of you seeing Led Zeppelin. Right. Why the fuck? I, bring out Zeppelin. What the fuck right. is that? But why has he got a dog and he's put it in a box? I want to see Zepp. Yeah. So for you, I mean, I don't know. Tell me if this translates or not. I, I'm real friendly with John Popper from Blues Traveler. Oh, I yeah, always say, what a great guy. Love, I love that guy. But I, I always say the reason that guy's mastered the harmonica is because he had a lot of downtime as a sort of... <laughs> overweight kid that was not in favor you know wasn't the captain of the football team and he wasn't betting all the cheerleaders and so instead he turned all that toward this discipline and you know now we get john popper yeah you know was there an element of that with you in magic well i actually i i didn't really start magic until i was uh 20 and working with teller so that's kind of what i'm saying but Mm -hmm. i was worse than magic i was a juggler Oh, worse. I was yeah. I was juggling uh, all the time because here's here's my uh, you're from Southern California. Yes. Okay, so you knew that show business was possible. Yes, I'd you weren't heard part of it. Of it. No. You'd heard of show business. I under yeah. I saw Robert Yurick in a Gelson's in Sherman Oaks. Yes, you know, nineteen seventy. Yeah, you know? mind blowing. He lived there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was from Western Massachusetts, and I desperately wanted to be in show business. And so I thought, <laughs> yeah, if I learned to juggle really well, there would be like an art talent scout You'd knock on the door and right. go, "You're a good juggler. Let's put you in show business." And I go, "Okay." That was really what I believed. How good this did is you get at juggling? Oh, fucking really good. Really now, good. Juggling is fascinating. I mean, in one way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to try to make that sentence make sense. But what's interesting to me is that juggling got so much better because of the internet. Now, we knew mm. the internet was going to be useful for getting fat 
and watching porn and mm-hmm. doing science. Right. If I had talked to you about the internet, you know, at MIT in 1983, uh, and said, "What's the internet going to bring to us?" You wouldn't have said, "We're going to get some really good jugglers." Right. That wouldn't be the first thing you'd say. No. And yet we did that. So what I did as a juggler in 1972, 73 was uh, really good. I mean, in the top five. Really? But top now, five of the world. The world. Now it would be a nine year old in Missouri. Okay. That's the level. Yeah. Of, so yeah. let's. Well, let's liken it to this. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean it. If you saw what a guy was doing on a skateboard in 1972, yeah. it was a kick turn on a four-foot half ramp, yeah. right? Now you see nine-year-olds at the X Games getting big air. Yeah. And it, it's basically... They're orbiting Earth. Yes, because <laughs> you see the internet, you go, I can it's do possible. this. It can be done. Well, it, it, I always say... The four-minute mile had never been broken for, you know, 2,000 years, you know, since the Greeks or whatever. The the second, I think it was Roger Bannister, the second he broke it, it got broke three more times in the next two weeks. This happens, like, that's all it took. This happens in science in a fascinating way. Hmm. They would, uh, in math, and I, and I love this, uh, a guy would announce that he had solved a, a theorem. He had mm-hmm. solved a problem. Mm-hmm. And he would announce it was going to be at a math conference. Mm-hmm. And before he gave his paper at the math conference, three other people would beat him to the punch. Right. And they did a lot of research going, we've got to find out where the leaks are. Right. Was it a student working in there? Was it this? Was it that? And these are scientists. Yeah. And finally they said, no, no, there's no leak. The guy says, I figured this out. And the other guy goes, oh, you can figure it out? Yeah. <laughs> That's no, all you need. I, it's like. Getting laid in high school, you yeah, get yeah. nothing. Or you get laid, and then the the, the, the clouds part, yeah. and the pussy uh, remains. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more Pendulab and Adam Carolla. Except uh, we're not going to be back, at least not right now. We're going to cut this in half and come back uh, next week. But for now, that was Penn Sunday School. That was Penn Sunday School. Cha cha cha. You become naked. You know, I I like Adam Carolla. We've been friends for a long time. We went through, you know, we we did a, a tour of duty with uh, Trump together. Crazy times. I like Adam. I do. We got more to talk about. But that'll be in another show. You know, we love you. Hey, Matt, you got anybody to thank? Yes, I want to thank the following people who support us over at patreon.com slash pen. If you want personal videos to send out to loved ones, if you want uh, signed postcards from Penn every month, if you want to be thanked on air like you're about to hear right now, head over to patreon.com slash pen. I want to thank Matthew Applehands, Fractured Adventures, Carlos Alvarez, Nicholas Emerson, Michael Cornwall, Ross Devereaux, Rue Dudley, Ryan Matthews, Jeff Bacher, and Possibilities Magic Show in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Michael Torbay, Ilan Lee, Jacob McCulley, Nicole Martin, Crazy Cat Lady Scoop, Music Man, No Thank You Daddy, Rachel Hawkins, Jake Schneider, Pete, not Peter, Hoke, which rhymes with Coke, Kelly McCauley, Corey Mitchell, Robin Garnett, 
How many minds could a mindler mind if a mindler could noodle minds? Love, Tom and JL. And Ovi Dimitrian Jr., thank you so much. Thank you. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 